This is the Dear Dougie podcast from the Dougie Center in Portland, Oregon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dear Dougie podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Jana DeCristofero, and thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is meant to open up the often avoided conversation about grief. While we all experience loss in our lives, when it occurs, most of us don't know how to feel, what to do, or how to talk about it. So whether you're grieving a loss or wanting to support someone who is, we hope these podcast conversations lead to a better understanding of grief and also provide some ideas and inspiration for how to show up for yourself and those you care about. Today's episode is the third in a three-part series talking with people who have had someone die from an overdose. And the first I spoke with Jessica about the death of her younger brother. In part two, our guest was Samina, a grieving mother whose oldest son died of a heroin overdose. For part three, I thought we'd be joined by another Dougie Center staff member talking about tips for supporting children and teens when a parent or a sibling dies. But in a lucky for us twist, Samina's younger son, Liam, happened to be home for a college break and had just enough time to come in and record with us today. Hi, Liam. Hi, Jana. So nice to see you here again. Great to see you. Great to be here. Liam, you're, what, a junior? That's right. And how old were you when your brother died? I was 13 when I was passed away. So you were in middle school at the time? Yeah, just about to head into eighth grade. I remember you the first time you came to the Dougie Center, what you looked like and what you said. I'm curious, what when you think back, what do you remember from those first few hours, days, and weeks after he died? The moment of is still extremely vivid. Um, I can remember everything from the shorts I was wearing to the orange Crocs on my feet. The hours after, very blurry. Uh, I can't quite recall uh, anything in, in any sort of detail, but I remember this kind of feeling like I was floating and like nothing would ever return to what it was. And I remember uh, in, the, in, the, in the days afterward feeling really loved by a lot of people because they'd, you know, they'd shown support um, and I felt like we had a community that was there for us, but also really scared. Uh, I felt the fragility of life for the first time. I remember being scared about that and also feeling like I needed to start living not just for myself, but for my brother. Um, and then I felt like, oh, okay, well, I've, I've got this greater purpose in life, but also, like, this is really heavy. Mm. Um, That's a lot of pressure. Exactly. It's a lot of pressure. And then uh, after a little while, things transitioned from, from worrying about myself and what I needed to do into worrying about my parents and how I could support them. What prompted that shift for you of away from focusing on what does this mean for me or how am I going to live my life now to worrying about your parents? I don't know if I can pinpoint it to a specific moment. Actually, yes, I can. I remember um, I was really down, and it was like maybe four or five days after I had passed, and I was in my room, uh, and I'd closed the door, and I, I think I was just like crying and looking out the window, and Dad came in, and he said, I am so sorry that your brother's gone, and I was like, I am too, but wow, your son is gone, uh, and I'm really sorry about that, and I didn't vocalize it in that way, but it was the first time that it hit, like, oh crap, my parents are really affected, and I need to support them too. What did that end up looking like, you supporting them? You know, I'm, you can never quite be sure that you did support them. Um, but I tried my best to, to be there for them uh, in the ways that a son can. Get good grades, show them that you were okay, and in doing so, show them that you could be strong for them. Um, especially for my mom. She, you know, I'd often come home and she'd be uh, upset or crying. I would do my best to try to comfort her. So in the grief world, the people who do this type of work, there's a lot of focus for teens and kids when a brother or a sister dies to make sure that they get to still be kids and that they aren't going into that role of parenting their parent. Mm -hmm. Where was there space for you in your grief? 
So certainly in the Dougie Center. I, n I never felt as if, as if I could really talk to my parents as openly as I wanted to. Um, and I never had my grief validated in the way that I did when I was at the Dougie Center and when I was around peers who had experienced the same thing. The single most helpful thing that I ever heard was it's okay to feel what you're feeling no matter what it is. I think in the moments after grief, we often feel guilt if we're ever happy or we feel waves of really, really deep sadness. And these alternate and that's just part of the grieving cycle. Um, and I felt as if I was weird because I had those kinds of cycles. Mm -hmm. And then coming to the Dougie Center and talking to you know, my peers and even hearing you, Jana, tell me like, it is okay to feel what you're feeling, uh, that changed things a lot for me and I felt safe. So you found out we're all weird together. Yeah. So it's all right exactly. to do that. With Ayaz's is addiction and, and dying from a heroin overdose. How did his specific way that he died influence or affect your grief? It certainly made me wary of drugs. Um, Overdose is a really terrifying thing. And I've thought about, I mean, I'm sure everybody's had fleeting thoughts about, you know, how they want to die. To me, an overdose just seems so weak. And for a while, I was really angry at Ayaz uh, for dying in such a weak way. I know that I would never want to put myself in a position where that's even close to happening. And I get really frightened when I hear, you know, people talking about it casually, because it's not something casual. Just yesterday, my mom and dad and I were watching a movie called American Gangster. Great film with Denzel Washington. And the premise is that this gangster guy gets uh, opium from overseas and brings it to the US and sells it for cheap and it's amazing heroin and it kills a bunch of people and they talk about it so casually. And I'm like, one of those people could have been my brother. So it, it bothers me when I think about drugs now. How did you like get through high school with that? I'm just picturing here you mm. are, you're in eighth grade, your brother dies of an overdose, you're heading into high school where I imagine there was a lot of opportunity to have those kinds of conversations or overhear mm -hmm. things that maybe were not so helpful to hear. Yeah, I mean, luckily, heroin is not, it was not used at my high school. It's not used at my college either. Certainly other drugs are, but I was insulated from, from hearing talk about heroin in particular, which is good because it is a really dangerous drug that nobody should be doing recreationally. But in terms of drug jokes, like, you know, people make jokes all the time about, about uh, shooting up or heroin in specific, and that still bothers me. I still clench my fist a little bit. Do you say anything? No, I'll never say anything. I don't want to be oversensitive. So it's more of an internal reaction. Right, right. In some families, when there's been a struggle with addiction, the urge can sometimes be to, to hide that information or to mm. not talk openly about it. What's, what's your suggestion if there's a family out there mm. who has had someone die of an uh, an overdose and they have a middle schooler or a high school in their family. Yeah. I think the problem with a drug overdose is that you assume that the person who was taking the drugs was a bad person. And so I think the, one of the reasons that, that parents tend to hide the fact that the older sibling or the younger sibling for that matter was, was doing drugs comes from a place of love and it comes from a place of protection of the person who died and, and wanting to protect the image of them as a good person. But I think it would be more helpful to understand what would cause a person, even a good person, to get into drugs. I think my brother was an amazing person, kind and warm-hearted, loving and depressed, and that's why he turned to drugs. Knowing that and, and having my parents talk openly about, about what drug addiction was, um, a disease, really helped me form my opinion about those who use drugs. Not to paint them as, you know, a blanket statement would be that all people who use drugs are bad, but rather that Drugs are an escape for people who really need it. 
and there are a lot of ways that they can get there. And so my parents, I'm really grateful to them. They were, they were open with me and honest about what was going on in our family, and they helped me understand what led Ayaz to do drugs rather than paint him as a villain. And from what you're saying, it seems like that helped you have more compassion yeah. for him and for your family, right. of him being part of your family. Right. So Liam, now from your place as being a junior in college mm -hmm. and thinking back, the memories might be hazy, but mm -hmm. to being in eighth grade and all through high school and starting college, as a teenager, what do you think was unique or, or challenging about being mm. in grief and a teenager? Oh, being a teenager is hard to begin with, and then you add grief on top, and you feel really isolated and different. It was nice to have a place where I didn't have to feel different. Did your peers make you feel different? Was it just an internal carrying this around, I'm different? I, th I, th I think it's internal, um, but I genuinely do think that there's a, the difference in experience between um, a regular teenager and one who's experienced some intense grief forces a, a different level of maturity. Not to say that I was the most mature kid, I definitely wasn't, but I'd seen things that my peers wouldn't have seen and probably still haven't seen and probably hopefully won't ever see. And so, so there is, there's just a fundamental difference in experience that, that colors a relationship with people. How did that affect your, like, how you connected with people? Like, I've seen mm. some things and I've experienced stuff in my life that you all haven't. It's an interesting question. I think the answer to that question is constantly evolving. Um, in middle school and high school, I felt more isolated because more of my peers had not experienced these kinds of things. Um, but as I've grown older, I've realized that, you know, everybody's got a hole in their pocket whether it's the loss of a family member or whether it's uh, you know, the death of a really sweet pet. Um, and to everyone, uh, there, there, there's something that they carry around every day that hurts. Uh, and so I think as I've gotten older, I've learned to, to try to listen to those things um, and um, respect people for their human experiences rather than for their, their grief experiences. But in middle school, it was tough. It was like, damn it, like, I'm sad and I want you to be sad too. Mm -hmm. And you're probably sad about something that I might not necessarily qualify as right. worth being that sad over. Exactly, yeah. And now the perspective I've gained is that everybody's sad in their own ways. <laughs> were there particular things that teachers did or said that were both helpful or maybe not so helpful? Mm. I think kind acknowledgement, especially like right afterward. Um, coming into eighth grade that year, it was really helpful to know that my teachers knew, but that they didn't call me out for it in class. They didn't treat me different as far as I could tell. But after, after class, um, a couple of my teachers said, hey, you know, if you need anything, let me know. Um, so knowing that they knew without right. making it a, a big like public spectacle. Right. right. Yeah, that helped. When we talk with teens who have had someone die, it seems like homework and schoolwork can go in two directions. Some people are like more dedicated than ever, mm. and others it's really challenging and a struggle to focus in class or complete homework assignments. How was that for you? Yeah. I mean, like I said, um, after Ayaz passed, it kind of felt like I had to take on the job of being both sons to my parents. And so I felt added responsibility to do well in college uh, and to get good grades. And so I think I was the type to buckle down more so than I would have. I was kind of a goofball kid before <laughs> it happened. And then afterward, I became more serious. Mm. How, how did you handle that stress, that added responsibility? Having people to talk to is nice. I had good friends, a good support group from the Dougie Center, also from my parents. And they always told me, you know, like, you don't need to do this. You don't need to get good grades. It's great if you do, but we're, we're happy no matter what. That pressure really came from you. Yeah, I guess it did. And has that continued in college? To a lesser degree. <laughs> uh, I am much happier with a B. <laughs>
What's your sense of how you were raised, uh, the worldview you were raised mm. with, belief systems? What role did that play in your grief or how you responded to Ayaz's death? Mm. He died at such a, a critical point in my life. I, I define that moment as the moment that I became a person um, in, a, in a strange way. I was, like I said, a goofball kid until I was like 13. And then that happened and the, the weight of life and the gravity of each moment hit me really hard. It was like, um, life is worth living and purpose in life is, is the value that I hold most strongly ever since then. Um, and I think that worldview was shaped by that moment. I don't think that I really had a solid worldview before then. Mm. And my parents did a good job, you know, you know, raising me to believe these things anyway. But you don't really believe it until it happens to you. I mean, that's a roundabout answer, but... Almost as if your grief created your worldview. Right. Mm. What surprised you about grief or what continues to surprise you about it? How long it lasts. How long did you think it would take when it first happened? Oh, everybody says, oh, it gets easier with time. And that's true. The waves of grief, uh, the, the, the lapses within them grow longer, but it is always there. I still think about Ayaz every day, and I still think about how he affects my mom, especially, every day. Um, so nobody prepared me for that, so that's surprising. Does grief feel like it's more of a, because you say, I think about him every day, and I think about how his death affects my mom every mm -hmm. day. Is it fair to say that grief has moved from predominantly a feeling experience to more of a thinking experience? Totally. Yeah, it's more, yeah, I, I don't know how else to put it other than that. It's less emotional and more um, almost this like academic enterprise. Hmm, I wonder how that affects mom. Um, or uh, there's, I mean, there's certainly emotion to it. Like when there's, when I'm thinking like, oh, I wish I could call him and ask, uh, you know, how did he make friends freshman year? Certainly that is emotional, but it's also a thought. It's less, I miss you and more, I wonder. Mm. So I guess that's how it's changed. And that's surprising. From my conversations with you and my conversation with your mom, I've always had the sense that Ayaz was sort of this, almost this mythical person mm -hmm. in terms of his presence in this world. And I'm curious how he continues to have a role in your life. Hmm. He becomes more and more mythical. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, t we tend to idealize the dead, but Ayaz was pretty much an ideal person, uh, even when he wasn't alive. So in his case, totally valid. Totally valid. <laughs> and the more I think about, you know, or the, the, the more distances between uh, his living experience and, um, and, you know, after he's passed, I think he, t he just gets more and more idealized. <laughs> he's just the perfect human being, which is kind of fun because I, I, tr I like to, to imbibe some of his qualities sometimes. Um, it's really hard to be as, as giving and as thoughtful as he was, but also, you know, a good place to start, I suppose. A good model. One of the other things seems to come up a lot, particularly with going to college, even in high school too, is meeting new people, making new friends who didn't know this person who mm. had such a huge uh, influence in your life. Mm -hmm. How do you navigate that? That's a really interesting question. I didn't tell any of my friends about Ayaz until maybe the end of freshman year. In college? In college. Mm. Um, that's when I opened up to a, like a very select few, two or three friends. And then as I got to trust more people, it came out naturally. In high school, I think most people probably knew because it carried over. And so there wasn't so much concern about, you know, letting people in on this big secret in my life. But it, like disclosure is one of those things that 
I feel like is unnecessary um, to create new friendships now because while it shaped me, um, it's not the only or the most significant part of me anymore. But as I get to know people better and trust them, I think disclosure helps give them a better picture of who I am and why I, I feel the way I do about life. It's a really emotional moment and usually elicits a, an, a, an interesting response from the other person. What kinds of responses have you received? Like a lot of people telling me about you know, some of the, the, the moments in their lives that shaped them. And that's really interesting. Um, and to see how different types of moments will affect the person that's created from them. So you taking that risk and opening up and disclosing, I think is the mm -hmm. word you used, helps to build a deeper connection right. between you and this other person. Right. And it's happened the opposite way, too. I met, the first friend that I opened up to uh, in college, he first told me, um, it was late one night, and we were uh, outside the dorm room, and he told me that... Um, Sophomore year of high school, he battled leukemia and had to take a year out, um, was in a hospital for like eight months. Um, and uh, because he was, you know, willing to disclose that information to me, I felt almost like I owed him something. Um, so I told him about Ayaz. And what was really interesting was that we, we, we took those experiences, very, like, not similar experiences in that, you know, we were, one was dealing with death of a, another person, one was dealing with the threat of death for yourself but how much they shaped our worldviews in similar ways. So those kinds of moments have been really rewarding and neat. So the risk has been worth it yeah. with those. Well, Liam, is there any last things you would want to most share with anyone out there listening who is parenting a grieving teen? If you can, take them to the Dougie Center. <laughs> um, or a place like the Dougie Center in your home community. Or a place like community. the Dougie Center in your home community. Um, because having, having peers to talk to was probably the sing most helpful tool that I had to grieve. Understand that as much as you try to, your, your, your child is still going to be, to, or to want to look out for you. Um, and so they will never fully feel like they can talk to you about exactly what their grief looks like. Uh, and so having a group of peers or non-parents, non-family members who are willing to listen really makes a big difference. And for anyone out there who isn't in the Portland area, I'll link in our show notes to um, a part on our website where you can search for programs similar to the Dougie Center in your home community. And if you are struggling to find a, a spot like that, you can always email us at help at Dougie.org and we can try to see if we can help you find a resource in your community. Well, Liam, thank you so much My for pleasure. driving in traffic and spending some yeah. of your college break here with us. Happy I really appreciate it. talking with you. Thank you. And thanks everyone out there for tuning in today. If you would like to listen to part one or part two in this series of talking with people who have had someone in their life die of an overdose, you can find them on our website, dougy.org, or you can also find us in iTunes where you can give us a rating or a review, which will really help other people make their way to our podcast as well. Thanks for listening today and hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for listening.